Welcome to the Home Birth After Cesarean podcast. Due to the rate of unnecessary C-sections, the lack of support, and limited options for VBAC moms in the hospital, more and more women are choosing to have their VBAC babies at home. This podcast was created for women to share and listen to stories of home birth after cesarean. I'm your host, Rachel Garrett. Today we're chatting with Morgan, and we have a lot to talk about today. So Morgan is going to share a little bit about herself, her birth stories, and then some of the women that she supports in birth as well. So Morgan, before we jump into our conversation, do you just want to start us off with an introduction? Sure. So my name is Morgan Van Buell. I am a traditional midwife in the state of Georgia. I am a Christian wife, and I'm a homeschooling mom of five. I'm also an anti-vaxxer, an intactivist, and a truth seeker, and I'm really excited to talk about birth today. Yes, I'm so excited too. I feel like you have so much good stuff to share. So do you want to get started just with talking a little bit about your own personal birth experiences? Yes, I would love that. So my first birth was actually a C-section. Um, I was a teen mom, so um, teen pregnancy. When I found out I was pregnant, I was nervous, but very excited. Um, I come from a family of seven children, so the idea of having a baby did not scare me. Um, I was very excited, even though the dad was not really in the picture. So I always loved to watch the show A Baby Story on TLC. I used to watch this, let's see, this was about 10, 11 years ago. So they, they broadcasted everything. It would just be a little blur right in the genital area and that'd be, mm-hmm. it'd be pretty raw. They would, <laughs> they would show everything. So I remember watching those shows and I thought, okay, um, just by watching this and being slightly educated on childbirth, I do not want a C-section. I want to have a natural birth. Um, even in that moment, I decided that I didn't want to have an epidural, that see- things seemed to flow much smoother without an epidural. So that's, that's what I desired. So I went through, uh, went throughout my pregnancy and just kind of experienced the nausea in the beginning. But other than that, everything was very uneventful, totally normal, healthy pregnancy until about um, 32 to 33 weeks, my blood pressure started to elevate. At the time, the OB I was seeing, who I fully trusted at the time, um, put me on some blood pressure medication. And when I was on that blood pressure medication, I remember telling my mom, this does not feel good. Like it's making me feel terrible. Um, sometimes I would start to just feel very lightheaded and just completely disconnected. And I remember one time feeling like, like I was even not alive. Like, and and then my mom kind of checked out my blood pressure and it was extremely low. So I went back to the OB. They didn't seem concerned at all. They said that low blood pressure on that medication was normal and that I just need to continue the pregnancy. And around 38, 39 weeks, we would talk about induction. So I just had this feeling, you know what? I want to change OBs. So I changed my OB at 36 weeks. The new OB did a 24-hour urine. And um, I guess I was showing some protein in the urine. So they said I, in, I did need an induction and that I would need to show up to the hospital the next day. 
So I went to the hospital for the induction. And at the time, of course, I had no idea what I was getting myself into and what I was consenting to. I had no idea of the risk of induction. Um, In my mind, induction meant that the medication was going to dilate me and everything was going to be fine. And I was going to have my vaginal birth despite um, the medical issues I was experiencing. So they started the pit, you know, they, at night, they had me come in there at night. They, um, they did the Cervidil and they did the, um, what is this medication? It's like a sleeping medication is what they gave me. Um, and little did I know at the time that Cervidil is actually made with uh, pig semen. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's gross. Um, <laughs> it's <is> very disgusting. <laughs> um, so yes, the listeners should know that, that um, Cervidil is actually concentrated pig semen and they're putting it on your cervix. So if you're trying to help your cervix naturally um, soften and dilate the semen has prostaglandins and your husband or your partner has that in in them and you don't need cervidil. Um, Sex is, (laughs) sex is a great way to, to prepare the body. So they gave me the cervidil and the sleeping medication and had a little bit of a bad reaction from that sleeping med and was screaming at everyone. But eventually I passed out and woke up the next morning to start the Pitocin. So they started the Pitocin and Everything was just very typical after that. Just your, your typical induction went into about 15 hours of the induction and nothing was happening. They were checking me. They broke my water. Um, and I was just labeled as failure to progress after 15 hours and sitting at a three. Um, so I got the epidural at that point and then, you know, cascade of interventions, they bumped up that Pitocin. And even though I wasn't feeling it, my poor little baby Bryson was feeling it and he started having heart D cells and what do you know, it's time for an emergency C-section and thank goodness for the doctor, right? Because he saved my life, even though if the induction process would have never happened, then I probably would have never had a C-section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So we went in through the C-section and I was terrified. I mean, they had to give me um, Xanax through my IV because I was just crying and hyperventilating and just absolutely terrified. I was 17 years old and my mom was there with me and my mom has been an RN for years and years and years and now she's actually a nurse practitioner. So at least I had her with me to kind of walk me through. I heard my baby cry for the first time and I did experience a small oxytocin rush. I did cry and I was very happy to hear his cries. And then they just took him off into the next room. And I was in the recovery room for 45 minutes, just kind of laying there with my arms tied down and, you know, wondering where's my baby. I don't want anyone else to touch him. I want to be the one to hold him. It was in the birth plan to have no pacifiers, no bottle. Then I, then I get to hold my baby and looking back, I don't remember holding my son for the first time. And that's very upsetting that I can't remember that. And it's probably just side effects of the medication. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a C-section with my first and, um, he is actually my only child that I did not successfully breastfeed. Um, they did give him a bottle when I was in recovery and a pacifier. So they did not respect my wishes. And yeah, it, it was extremely traumatic to say the least. I mean, the word traumatic doesn't even really 
service what I went through and it was awful. The recovery was awful. I had the staples and the glue and get home and my mom's taking care of me. And I remember sitting on the toilet to have my first bowel movement. I was looking at her holding a pillow against my cesarean scar, just looking at her and saying, I'm never having another child. I will never do this again. This is going to be my only child. And um, at the time I didn't know what VBAC was. So that was the, that was the first experience. And you were young too. I mean, to go through that experience and then to say at 17, I never want to have another child again. That's horrible. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And unfortunately I feel like teen moms and really just young moms, uninformed moms, single moms, uh, women of color, you know, we're all targets of the system. They, they see you as an easy target, especially if you have pregnancy Medicaid and, um, they see, you know, they see you as, as a target for, um, an expensive birth. So I guess moving on to the next pregnancy and that was in 2014. So 19 years old, another teen pregnancy. And I go into the same OB who had delivered my first child. And, um, at that first appointment, I was just expressing to him, you know, I am scared. I do. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And is the next C-section going to be less scary? Is it going to be better? And he actually said to me, well, you don't have to have a C-section. He just straight up came out with it. I was very surprised. Um, looking back, I would say that this is a halfway decent obstetrician. I wouldn't call him a good obstetrician, but he was, he was halfway decent. And He's, you know, he mentioned V back to me and immediately I was ecstatic. I mean, I came home and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to have a vaginal birth. Like I just, I had it in my mind and I knew it was going to happen. And usually when I set my mind to something, I, um, I do it. (laughs) Um, and throughout my pregnancy, it was a very uneventful pregnancy, totally normal. Um, baby was growing on track traditional obstetrician care, you know, the anatomy scan, everything like that. When I hit about 32, 34 weeks, I was wondering, you know, am I going to have preeclampsia again? Um, My mom had preeclampsia. So I imagined that it would just be something that I would experience in every pregnancy. And no, I didn't actually, I did not have um, any preeclampsia at all. No pregnancy induced hypertension. Everything was very normal. And I get to about 39 weeks and, um, I was being that typical, you know, uninformed mom who's constantly calling the OB office and, oh, I think I'm having contractions or like, you know, showing up to the hospital and false labor and that whole, that whole shabam. And, um, my doctor knew that I wanted to have this baby and looking back, what a silly decision, but I I was ready to have the baby. And at 39 weeks, he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. VBAC is, um, VBAC induction is frowned upon. So, um, and again, this was back in 2014. Now they say that induction for VBAC is safe and fine. And it's done quite often despite the risk of uterine rupture, which I didn't know at the time. So I go, um, I do what he asked me to do. He asked me to show up to the hospital and tell them that I'm having contractions. So I did that. And then they bring me to LMD and of course I'm not having contractions. So my OB comes in there and he breaks my water and, um, 
about 12 hours goes by, nothing's happening, no contraction. So he comes back the next day and just says, all right, well, nothing's happening. So we're going to start Pitocin. And uh, as soon as he started that Pitocin, I went into active labor and I labored for about three and a half hours and then um, hit transition. And at the time I didn't even know what transition was, but in other words, things started to get very intense for me and I was screaming for the epidural. And, um, if I would have known that I was in transition, then I wouldn't have gotten the epidural. I probably just needed someone to say to me, you know, it's almost over. This is the end. You're doing a very good job. And, uh, so I did get the epidural and just kind of turned over onto my back. And she, at that point, she's coming out. My body is pushing and about three pushes and, oh, they wheel everything in there. It was also kind of scary because they wheeled in, um, the table with all the instruments on it. They kicked everyone out of the room. Only my mom was allowed in there. And, uh, pushed about three times and out she came and they put her on my chest for about, I don't know, just a few seconds and immediately cut her cord and bring her over to the warmer. And there I am, uh, just in shock. And I'm like, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's happening with my baby? What's the matter? Why, why are you, you know, why is she over there? And everyone's just like, Morgan, it's okay. Everything's fine. Um, they're just cleaning her up and they're going to wrap her up and give her to you. And here I am like, excuse me, you know, why is my, why am I not holding my baby? And even though I didn't have much education on childbirth at the time, I, um, had these very, very high expectations for a hospital vaginal birth. And now looking back, and even in that moment, that is not what I received at all. I, I, after, after my hospital VBAC, I was extremely dissatisfied. I did deal with postpartum depression. And um, I think it's just because I had these very high expectations for a vaginal birth. And I thought that this was going to be this amazing healing experience after the C-section. And even though it wasn't traumatic, it just was so dissatisfactory. It was not what I was expecting. And I think that's what kind of tipped me over into the um, PPD. Well, and just hearing you say there was nothing wrong with baby, like people were telling you that there's nothing wrong. It was just purely like hospital policy and routine for baby to go to the warmer and get wiped down and wrapped up and have a hat thrown on them and all these things. And it's just like, why? Why is that necessary when there is nothing wrong with baby? Why wouldn't baby just stay on your chest the entire time? Oh, I, at this point in life, and and being a traditional midwife, I can tell you right now that there's no reason for any human being to even touch that baby in the immediate postpartum unless there is an emergency happening. Not, right. not stethoscopes, not pricks and pokes and touching and anything. I mean, I I hand the mother a towel if she needs it. And and that's that because um it is so important. I mean, imagine imagine this. We're not animals. We're, I know we're not animals. We're humans, but imagine this. If you touch a bird's eggs in the bird's nest, that bird is never going to come back to its eggs. If it smells another person on its young, even though that's not exactly how we run, but you are disturbing that oxytocin. You are disturbing 
the um, the connection between mother and baby. The the hats are blocking the pheromones coming from the baby's head. The erythromycin in the baby's eyes is blocking the baby's vision. When a baby is actually born with great vision, and then the vision kind of goes away for a couple of months there, and then comes back once they're used to the outside world. But uh, there's a lot of things that the hospital is doing to sabotage that connection between mom and baby. So with not feeling completely satisfied with that hospital VBAC, where did that lead you or how did it bring you to want to have your out of hospital births then? So it's the story of how I came to where I am now is actually um, very different, I should say, because even that experience alone did not immediately put this light bulb in my head about home birth. As a matter of fact, I did not even know that people have home birth. Like I thought that that was something that was kind of just extremely rare and that, um, that it just wasn't for me. Like it never even crossed my mind at the time. And and again, this was back in 2015. So then, um, we move on to baby number three. And when I got pregnant with baby number three, I went back to the same OB again. And when I went to that OB, it was probably about the third appointment and a new doctor comes in and she tells me, oh, sorry, um, the doctor that you have been seeing is actually no longer practicing. Um, So this is me. This is who I am. There's actually a midwife here too. And I was thinking, oh, midwife, that's great. Like I would love a midwife. Then I can probably have a more uh, natural experience, which is just another a whole nother thing that people think, you know, if I'm going to have a hospital midwife or a medwife that I'm going to have this awesome hospital experience. And that's not always the case, Mm -hmm. but anyway, so, um, I go into one of these routine appointments and they come in and they say, okay, now it's time for you to have your, um, vaccines. And I was like, excuse me, vaccines during pregnancy. Well, that's funny because I've had two children and I've never received a vaccine during pregnancy before. And they were like, oh yes, you have to have your uh, tetanus, pertussis and um, flu vaccines. It's to protect the baby. So at the time I was not actively, I was actively vaccinating my first two children so it wasn't that that I was afraid of all vaccines and that I was this anti-vaxxer yet. It was just I I needed I needed to learn about it. So I asked them for an insert and just for information. And ironically, this is actually the first time that I ever stood up for myself during any of my pregnancies and and really truly wanted to make this informed decision. I was at a point in life where I was asking questions. I was learning this new way, um, getting into the natural side of things. I was cloth diapering my baby, breastfeeding, and kind of just jumping down this rabbit hole, but just in the very beginning stages. So she looks at me with like this crazy look, and this is the medical assistant. And then she walks out and she sends in this midwife, this great midwife that I'm so excited to see. And she sends in this midwife and this midwife looks me in the face and is like, I'm going to go ahead and be very honest with you. We're not going to tolerate this hippie stuff in this office. (laughs) This is her exact words. Yeah. Her exact words, hippie stuff in this office. And you know, I was probably just not wearing any makeup, probably had like a long skirt on or something. And 
you know, she's just thinking that I'm this like anti-vaxxer or something. And I wasn't even there yet. And, uh, I just said, I looked at her and I was like, ma'am, I'm all I'm asking for is an insert. That's it. I'm not saying no, I'm not telling you that I'm not going to get the vaccine. I just want to make an informed decision and you are stopping me from making an informed choice. And then she, uh, walked out and then she walks back in and she just said, okay, here's the deal. We don't have inserts. We are going to give you two choices here. You can either receive the vaccine today or we will give you 30 days to find a new provider. And oh, oh yeah. She was like, we're dismissing you from the practice period. And here I am, like, I was so upset. I left, I was crying. I was like, no, I've, I've had this doctor, this practice both times. And little did I know that that was a complete blessing in disguise. I mean, that moment right there, thank you. I wish I could say that doctor's name, but we're going to keep it private. But I just want to tell her, thank you for starting this new life for me, because that was, that was the beginning of that. Wow. And uh, so I know, I know. And truly like, if they're not willing to give you informed consent and like talk through that with you at that time, how is that going to translate into when you're actually in labor and you're so much more vulnerable and going through that whole process? Because if there's no informed consent now, do you think that there's going to be later? Probably not. Absolutely not. Well, good for I you know, for turning that into a deeper journey for yourself. Absolutely. So I, you know, I left that office with my tail in between my legs. What am I going to do? Where am I going to give birth? And something just hit me at about 22 weeks pregnant. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go find a midwife, like an actual midwife. I'm going to go find a home birth midwife and I'm going to give birth at home because I'm not going to put up with this. I deserve autonomy. You know, I knew at that moment, like I deserve this. I I want this for myself. I want to have my baby and I don't want a single person to touch that baby except for me. This is my baby. And I don't want anyone else's hands on this baby unless it is completely necessary. So I did find a midwife. I'm not sure if she was a CPM or a CNM, probably a CPM. Um, met with her. She was about 45 minutes away from my house. I scheduled a consultation with her. Um, she did have me come to her house and that she does the appointments out of her home. So I go and meet with her and she was a lovely woman. I mean, she was so sweet. And I was talking to her, you know, about my VBAC and she was, uh, she was saying, oh yeah, well, you're a great candidate, even though, um, between the last two births was only, I, let's see, I got pregnant with my third when my, um, daughter, was only three months old. So very close in age. And, uh, she said I was a great candidate for a home birth VBAC. And, and again, I was already well into the second trimester at this point. And she was like, okay, that will be $4,000. Um, there is no payment plan. And here is the checklist for your birth kit. You have to purchase your own birth kit. Here it is. Uh, the only thing that I bring is oxygen and Pitocin. So this is it. And, uh, yeah, I, I asked her, you know, can, can we make a payment plan because I'm so far along in pregnancy, there was no option. And at that time in my life, I was absolutely 100% not going to be able to afford that at all. So, um, again, just this snowball effect. Um, I'm just kind of sitting there just 
not really seeing anyone. It's been about a month since I've seen any provider at this point. Um, and I meet up with one of my friends who is also pregnant. And we're just hanging out. This is someone that I was friends with a few years prior. And we just met up like, oh, we're moms now. And she informed me that she was going to have something called an unassisted birth. And I was like, what's that? And she's like, well, it's a home birth, except um, I'm doing it. I'm doing my own prenatal care. I'm going to be my sole attendant and I'm not going to have a midwife. And in my mind, I... I didn't even know that this was possible. I was thinking, is this legal? You know? Um, and again, this was back in 2015 and I was just thinking, wow, this girl's, this is, this is crazy, but you know, I'm kind of out there. So I'm, I'm just going to learn about this. So the very first thing I did was look up on Facebook and sure enough, there's the unassisted birth, no assistance talk group. So I've actually been in that group since 2015, 2016. And, uh, I just, at that moment, at about 25, 26 weeks pregnant, spent the entire remainder of my pregnancy drenching myself in education. I got the emergency childbirth handbook. I learned um, neonatal resuscitation from my mom. Let's see. I started with the Indie Birth podcast and listened to every single podcast that she offered at the time, uh, Taking Back Birth specifically. Free birth society was not a thing yet back then. And um, yeah, I just, I read the Inamang's Guide to Childbirth. I read a traditional midwifery handbook, um, just drenched myself in education and learned every single thing that could ever go wrong in childbirth in the natural setting where it's untouched. And believe it or not, that list is very small. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to recognize um, those emergencies so then I could conduct my own transfer if necessary. And uh, yeah, I, I went along with my pregnancy and on the exact 40th day of that pregnancy. Oh, let me, let me back up a little bit. I need to back up a little bit. I did see, I did opt to see an OB and um, I saw the OB until I gave birth. And every time I would go into these appointments, I would kind of just sit there with a smile on my face. You know, he's like, well, since you've had a C-section before, if you don't give birth by 39 weeks, we're going to start discussing scheduling that C-section. And I'm just sitting here like, okay, dude, you don't understand that I'm birthing this baby at home, no matter what. Like it was, (laughs) it was a dead set. (laughs) It was a dead set thing. And I just would go in there smiling and you know, they'd check on the baby, check his position and do the ultrasounds and the non-stress tests and all these things that, you know, now looking back that I know are completely unnecessary, but I, I did those things. And sure enough, let's see, I was 39 weeks and six days and I lost my mucus plug and I was very excited and went to sleep. And I just, I had this peace over me that I was just going to remain pregnant until my baby decided to be born. And on exactly the 40th day, on his exact due date, on May 31st, I went to sleep. And as I went to sleep, I was just having some practice contractions. And I woke up in the morning and those practice contractions were still going on. And at 7 a.m., I had my first um, real contraction. And um, the plan was to take the older two children 
to um, an in-home daycare. So my ex-husband and I took the children to the in-home daycare and big mistake to ride in the car because I didn't realize, you know, my previous birthing experience and history was pushing, you know, the 15th hour and 18th hour of being in labor. And little did I know that this baby was going to be born in less than three hours. So he was born at 10.05 a.m. And um, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, I had a birth pool. I had birth affirmations above me. And um, as soon as transition hit, I jumped out of the pool, got into the shower. Intuition flooded me. And I just got into the squatting position and, um, and delivered my own baby. I caught my own baby. It was just in that moment, the most beautiful experience I've ever had in my life. And it was like in that moment of his birth, that all of that trauma and all of that hurt that I had experienced with the previous two children just melted away. And it was just gone. It was gone. I'm curious what kind of support you had once making that decision to have the unassisted home birth. Like, did you have people in pregnancy and then there with you during labor that supported that decision or how did that play out? Actually, no, I did not have uh, much support at all for my unassisted birth. Um, My main support system was that unassisted Facebook group. That was my support system. Um, I got in there posting you know, quite often and just reading the stories, seeing the pictures, seeing the videos, that was my support because my mother, you know, being a nurse practitioner and she was also a respiratory therapist in the NICU, she, um, she's seen the bad side of things. So my mom refused to come when I was in labor. She just was driving around in the neighborhood just to kind of be there after the baby's born to kind of just run in there and save me if need be. And my ex-husband actually, um, he was there, but, um, wasn't really supportive at all. He just kind of was in the kitchen, just eating. And when transition hit, like, I remember I let out this big scream and he was like, that's it. I'm calling an ambulance. And I looked down, I said, no, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not. No, I didn't have much support. I was my support for that. So, you know, that, that, I guess that kind of, uh, fueled, fueled my mission. Um, that women should be supported in this. How did that leave you feeling postpartum after going through this very healing experience? Oh, my postpartum was great. And even though with my postpartum, I ended up with severe mastitis and then the treatment of the mastitis ended up with a fungal infection um, of my nipples and breasts. And even with all of that, and my son was born with a high palate. So he's one of those very, very rare cases that truly cannot latch um, in the beginning, even though it was a very difficult time with the breastfeeding issue. It was a beautiful postpartum. I decided to opt for the, um, to ingest the placenta because I did lose a lot of blood. So I opted to just kind of cut a few pieces off and just freeze them on a cookie sheet and swallow them as pills. Um, and that really helped with just adjusting to having a third baby. Um, and I still, I tell my, I tell my moms that, that, you know, a lot of people say that going from two to three children is sometimes the most difficult transition. And I believe that because of my means of birth, that that made that transition very smooth. Like, 
Um, and it was just a wonderful experience. I did not experience the postpartum depression like I did with my second. And it kind of goes back yeah. to what we were talking about with like that feedback loop of hormones and the oxytocin and everything right after birth just being completely undisturbed as compared to when you were in the hospital, there were all these interruptions and disturbances along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. No one touched my baby except for me. And then when I was ready to go and clean up, I was able to pass the baby to someone else. And um, yeah, I had that full oxytocin rush. When you are induced, you do not receive that oxytocin rush. You're receiving something that's counterfeit. Your body does not truly release all of that oxytocin. And, you know, I'm sure that your listeners know that oxytocin is the love hormone. It's the same hormone that is secreted when you see a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, when you kiss someone, when you make love to your partner, and when you breastfeed and when you give birth. And the largest rush of oxytocin that anyone will ever experience is during the moment after birth, the moments after birth. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyone who's not birthing in full autonomy is missing out. Yeah. And it's so protective too. I mean, it's there for a reason to help you bond with your baby and, and have that immediate relationship with your baby. Yes. Yes. I completely agree. So um, then after, after I had Vincent, I knew that this had to be shared. This experience, I have to be able to get this to other women. So in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to start my journey as becoming a birth attendant. At the time, I wasn't sure what kind of birth attendant I was going to be. I just knew that I would support women in all aspects. And at the time, I didn't know exactly what that meant. I just knew that from my experience being in the unassisted birth world, that babies can be born after 42 weeks and, and be healthy and your waters can release early. And as long as you're taking care of yourself and fully educated on the matter, then you can go on to continue your pregnancy in some cases and that uh, high blood pressure can be treated at home and, and all these things. So I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. And to make a long story short, I found out what a birth keeper was and started my journey on that. And then, um, I got pregnant with my fourth child and at the time I was going through a divorce. So my pregnancy with Violet, with my fourth child, very uneventful, um, a totally normal pregnancy. And what makes her birth story a little bit different is that when I was 39 weeks, my blood pressure spiked just like it did with the first pregnancy. And I immediately go back to what I've learned. And I had learned about the brewer's diet with, uh, during my learning about birth and everything in between. And I immediately started that Dr. Brewer's pregnancy diet, which is just making sure that your body is getting adequate protein, calcium, vitamin C, and all the things that your little pregnant body needs. Um, I started that eight, let's see, I did all of it. I did the garlic. I did the dark chocolate. I did, um, high doses of magnesium and vitamin C and within 48 hours, my blood pressure went back down. Um, I had my own urine test strips. There was no protein in my urine and I stuck to that diet to a T and, um, and things got better. But before things got better, um, I did have an experience in the hospital before she was born because because when my blood pressure spiked, um, I decided to go in. So I went into the hospital and, um, had a very terrible experience, pretty much, um, went in and 
this doctor, they, they asked me, you know, what's your history? Have you had, you know, C-sections and, and such. And to make a long story short, this doctor had seen that I had had a previous C-section and she came in there just totally ready to slice me open. She's like, Oh, okay. So you're 39 weeks. And I was like, yes, but I'm having a home birth. This is my second home birth. And of course they're mortified. Um, who's your midwife and all this stuff. I'm my midwife. What do you mean? I'm the, I'm the, I'm providing care for myself and I have been my entire pregnancy. She just, she checks me and tells me that my cervix is completely shut and thick and high, even though I had checked myself the day before. Um, when the blood pressure had initially spiked just to see if I could assume if I'm close, even though now I know that checking doesn't really mean anything. And she tells me, Oh, it's shut. If we, if we induce you, it's just going to spike your blood pressure and, and all this stuff. And we just, I think you should just go ahead for the C-section. And I looked at her and me being the outspoken person, I am just finally learning to stand up for myself, you know, getting separated from a bad relationship and having gone through the abuse I went through in the system, in the birthing system, the hospital system. I just looked at her and I just kind of chuckled and I said, look, I know I have pregnancy Medicaid, but you have the wrong one, honey. I need you to give me magnesium sulfate and I need to go home. You need to treat Mm -hmm. my blood pressure and I need to go home. And she said, treatment at 39 weeks, treatment at term is delivery. And she flat out refused to treat my blood pressure. She would not treat me she would not give me blood pressure meds. She would not treat the blood pressure. They did labs. There was no protein in the urine. The lab work was normal. No organ failure because preeclampsia is classified by high blood pressure and an organ failure. So liver enzymes were normal. Protein urea was normal. Everything was normal. So it was just pregnancy induced hypertension at that point, which is not a big deal. It's, it's, it's something that can be very easily treated more so than preeclampsia. And no, she refused. And, I, and my mom was there with me advocating for me. And I just said, okay, well, bring me my AMA because I'm leaving. And she, um, she told me straight to my face, your baby, what are, oh, she said, what are you going to do when your baby dies? What are you going to do when your baby dies? That's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Just very abusive. Mm-hmm. very abusive. So I did leave and my mom helped me file a complaint against her and um, I left and I started that brewer's diet and all the things to lower the blood pressure, which I do help women through today. And I went home and I, and this was at 39 weeks and I carried this baby to 42 weeks and two days with the blood pressure down. And I, I went into labor and um, this is where this story gets interesting is I delivered um, Violet completely by myself with my other children asleep in their rooms. Like Um, nobody else was even around. Nobody else was there. I kicked everyone out. Um, I, I just, I just had this, um, overwhelming intuitive feeling that like, I don't need anyone else around me. So once I knew I was in labor, I started to fill up my birth pool and get everything prepared. I set up, um, my tripod and my camera to record my birth. Um, because I wanted to share with my clients and share with my friends and, you know, share with the unassisted birth group that if you don't have support, then you are able to do this by yourself and you don't need someone to come through and save you. I had all the things. Um, I felt very comfortable. My intuition was telling me that everything was fine and everything was normal. Um, at the time I had advanced in my career and knew all the things that I would need to do to support myself. 
I went into labor at about 11 PM and, um, this birth was much different because my labor was two hours longer than the one before. And I later learned that the reason for that was that my baby was posterior. And, um, I did not experience back labor like most say, but I had my birth pool. And as soon as transition hit, um, this was my second attempted water birth. And as soon as transition hit, nope, i ran straight into the bathroom. Um, and she had a very dramatic entrance into the world. I, um, remember looking at myself in the mirror and experiencing this very spiritual psychedelic almost experience and just looking at myself in the mirror, like, yes, yes, you, you're doing it. You're doing it now. And, uh, I just crouched down and just had this overwhelming urge to vomit and to have a bowel movement. And I knew it was the baby coming out, water broke, um, and Violet just shot out of me. I mean, straight up shot out of me and hit the toilet and babies are very resilient, but try to not drop your baby when they're born. (laughs) Um, but yeah, she's, she shot straight past my hands and I picked her up out of the floor and she was beautiful. Her color was gorgeous. And, and even though she wasn't crying immediately, she was grimacing and her tone and everything was just so great. And I'm holding her and I'm crying and just loving on her and stimulating her and kissing her. And within about 60 seconds, she let out her first cry and sounded very dry and perfect. Everything was so great. And and uh, my oldest son heard heard the commotion and came running in there and just put his arms around me and was kissing his little sister. And it was just so beautiful. And uh, and my mom came right after, you know, just like she did with the with the previous birth and and got me into the bed and helped me with my immediate postpartum. And and it was great. It was just it was just another beautiful experience. Um, perfect connection with the baby. Wonderful breastfeeding relationship. Um, even though I was going through a divorce and having a lot of, uh, not a lot, but just a little of chaos in my life, but I still did not experience any type of postpartum depression or mood disorder after having her. It was all just, all just fine and dandy and great. That is some serious power to (laughs) have your baby completely by yourself. Cause I hear so often like the number one reason why women don't have a home birth is, well, my partner's not supportive or someone in my life is speaking this fear into me and I don't have the support to do it at home. So what a testament that you don't have to have other people on board with your birth plans. You just need to be comfortable with them yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing too is I find that a lot of women tend to be more afraid with the second home birth because their first home birth went so great. They wonder, Hmm, how, how is this going to happen again? How is it going to go just as great a second time? So, um, yeah, everything was great with her. And, um, at this point I'm, you know, well into my birth keeping career. And, um, I know that you wanted me to share a story of a client of mine that was very extraordinary yeah. just to kind of let everyone else hear this testimony. Yeah, I would love that. So, I had some I had a woman reach out to me in her 30th week of pregnancy. She had found me in an unassisted Facebook group through some recommendations and she was searching for a provider for um 
a home birth after three C-sections. And when I met for our consultation, you know, she was so afraid that I wouldn't support her um, because she had met with the local obstetrician here who was renowned, um, Dr. Boots Taylor. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners, especially in the state of Georgia, have heard of him. He's he's a very decent obstetrician and supports VBAC and um, works with a lot of the home birth midwives in the state of Georgia. Um, so even, even he had told her no, that, that it wasn't possible. And she was willing to drive an hour and 45 minutes to that hospital. And she met with um, two other or attempted to meet with two other midwives, CPMs, CNMs. And, you know, they all just flat out told her, no, no, it's too dangerous. No, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, you're not a candidate. It's far too dangerous. And I just want to say for the record that even ACOG says that a trial of labor after C-section, even though they don't, they don't have mentioned much um, with multiple C-sections, but a trial of labor after C-section is indeed safer than a repeat C-section. The risk associated with a repeat C-section is higher than mm-hmm. that of laboring. But when, uh, when we met, we just instantly had this connection. Um, we shared very similar views. She homeschooled her kids. I was homeschooling mine. We were both, you know, not actively vaccinating our children and everything that we talked about just really aligned. Um, so I, I definitely, I trusted her, you know, she was very, very well informed and knew that, how important it was for her to trust her body and to trust her intuition during this process. And, you know, we kind of just went over what a uterine rupture would look like and, and what are, what are the signs and symptoms of this and how to recognize it, you know, just talked about fetal positioning and all of these things. And, um, and yeah, she, she decided to move forward with it and hire me. And we met for a couple of prenatals and during these prenatals, not once did I ever feel afraid or fearful or anything. I just, I fully trusted her. And anyway, so, um, we met for our prenatals and everything was looking very nice. No blood pressure problems, no, um, no protein urea, nothing, nothing to ever worry me during the process. And, um, you know, she passes, she surpasses her due date, which is totally fine then eventually reaches the 41st week of pregnancy and nothing was happening yet. She just continues on and I encourage her to follow her and her intuition and listen to what her body's telling her. And then I finally get the call that um, her water has broken and that she's having contractions. So um, I head out to her house and at the time she was um, two hours and 20 minutes away from me due to what I offer, I I have a pretty high demand and sometimes have people that are even out of state and who are, um, trying to get me to attend their birth. So I don't, at the time I didn't mind traveling. Um, so I get to her house and by the time I get there, contractions have slowed. Nothing's really happening. Um, she's contracting about every 10 to five, five to 10 minutes. Then the contractions start to fizzle out some more and just encouraging her to rest. And then we go into the next day and I was there for about 18 hours. And she just encouraged me to go home that nothing's really happening at this point. And, um, I, allow, you know, I'm letting her still remain in control of the situation, of course, as always. And, um, I go home 
and um, she continues being pregnant. I just, you know, I, I let her know, you know, no fingers, no sex, no nothing inserted into the vagina because your waters are open. And at the time the fluid was clear. So we just wait and we 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 wait. And, um, you know, she's monitoring herself at home for signs of infection. She's very frequently taking her temperature, um, smelling the amniotic fluid to be sure that there's no signs of infection. And she had her own fetal Doppler and she was actively listening to baby, feeling baby, turning inward and um, asking herself if she feels safe, is her baby safe? Um, so an entire whopping eight days goes by wow. with her water open. And um, finally, she gives me the call. All right, it's time. Contractions have picked up. Please come back. So I come back to her house. And again, by the time I get there, the contractions are very irregular. One's coming every five minutes, then every 20 minutes, then every 10 minutes, just very irregular. Um, I do not require cervical checks at all in my practice. So unless she asks me to check her, I'm not going to. And I have encouraged her to not opt in for cervical checks due to the water being open. And it's very good that we did that because I think that had a lot to do with her success. So what we did was I just said, okay, we're, you know, let's, let's do some work here. So what we did was I had her, we got the rebozo out and I did just a little bit of shaking the apples and you can look this up on spinning babies to see what this is. Um, it's kind of just using this rebozo to kind of shake the hips and reposition baby if baby's in a bad position and her baby was in a little bit of a transverse lie at that time. Um, so we did shaking the apples. We did side lying release on both sides for 30 minutes each side. And then I had her get up and do some deep squats. And the moment she got up from that third deep squat, her contractions were right on top of each other, coming every five minutes, then coming every two minutes. And they remained that way for four hours. And uh, then the contractions began to happen every minute. And she starts pushing. And this powerful mama, after three C-sections, pushes out a beautiful, healthy baby girl and that cried immediately and um, was also covered in meconium because she started, she did pass a meconium bowel movement um, towards the end there um, and gave birth to a seven pound and some change baby. Um, and it was the most beautiful healing experience she ever had. And she still goes on to this day, um, you know, thanking me and she actually attended my, my wedding. So I did, I did end up remarrying and, um, she attended my wedding last November and came with all her little children and we took pictures together and, um, we're good friends now. I was just going to say what an awesome friendship that was able to blossom from, just being there to provide the support that she was looking for. Yeah, so we are we are good friends to this point. And a lot of my clients, um, we end up being very close and very good friends because, you know, that's that's what this is, is, you know, when we when we have our prenatals, we're not we're not doing five, 10 minutes of testing and then see you later. You know, I'm our appointments last about two hours and we're sitting there, we're talking, we're, we're creating this uh, relationship together because, you know, I'm going to be there in your most vulnerable moment of your life. And, um, and it's very important, you know, my client's comfort is my, my priority. So we spend a lot of time getting to know each other and blossoming a good, good and healthy relationship. And I just want to note too, what you had mentioned about her, her taking that ownership 
and responsibility for monitoring herself, checking her temperature, all of these things at home to ensure her her own well-being, the well-being of her baby. And just having that that trust between the two of you that like, yes, everything is okay. We're keeping an eye on things, but we're just going to trust that your body knows what it's doing and is going to birth your baby in its own time. Because that's not something that you get in a hospital setting. In the hospital, it's the doctors take control. It's, it's the doctor's responsibility to ensure your safety and your baby's safety. And they don't they don't typically, if ever, hand that responsibility over to the mom. No. And you know what? I am so glad that you have brought this up because usually when I meet with my clients for a consultation, I like to tell them that sometimes what can happen is the client will put all of her trust into her midwife and the midwife will put all of her trust into her books and training. And sometimes doing this can, can have very negative outcomes. Um, sometimes when you read these detrimental home birth stories, the mother just continuously repeats, I trusted her. I trusted her. I trusted her or the midwife, or they say, we listened to the heart rate. It was normal. It was normal. It was normal. But I tell my clients, you know, I encourage you to trust yourself. I want you to trust yourself. I want you to go deep within and listen to that God-given intuition. I mean, I believe that this is a gift from, from God. This is a gift and all women have it. And it's just a matter of being able to separate fear from intuition. And uh, I want my clients to trust themselves. And I put my trust into my client. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it has, we have to bond this very trusting relationship. And it's, it's very important for healthy outcomes. I feel like sometimes it's hard for women to tap into their own intuition and trust themselves when they don't have the support to do so. So, I mean, I just think that that's great that you you put that trust and support out there for other women to have the opportunity to tune into themselves and really listen to themselves because that's that's really hard to get with OBs, different types of midwives, I mean, really, really anywhere or even from just the people in your day-to-day life. Yeah, that's, you know, and, and just while we're talking about this, I, um, this is why I, when I decided that I wanted to be a midwife, I chose against licensure. I chose against it. I'm, I'm unlicensed by choice. I am, I am a fully traditional autonomous midwife. Um, I don't believe that, that any governing entity should be able to tell me who I can and cannot take as a client, because I believe that every woman has the right to decide who is qualified to attend their birth. And there are just many reasons for this. And and one of them being just, just my experiences alone with my own births, you know, going past 42 weeks, that's normal. And here, you know, here in the state of Georgia and a lot of states and a lot of countries that once a woman surpasses the 42nd week, these home birth midwives, um, it's against their licensure to attend these births and she risks her license being ripped from her for attending a birth after 42 weeks. So sometimes what can happen is these families, they fork out, you know, three to $7,000 for a midwife. And, and then, and then the woman surpasses the 42nd week and there has to be a choice made. Either they're going to drink something like castor oil that is just not safe or they're going to lose all of their money that they've paid in their home birth is sabotaged. And I just, I just choose to not be a part of that. And I think what you were saying too, about 
just the variations from state to state. I don't know if you want to speak on this a little bit too, um, but the differences in restrictions, even with like some states, you have to be a CNM, certified nurse midwife, to attend home births. Some states, you can be a certified professional midwife, a CPM, but there's a lot of states, I don't know how many off the top of my head, I don't know if you do, that regardless of licensure, midwives can't attend a home birth if you've had that previous C-section. So it really would only be an unlicensed or a traditional midwife that could support you in that if you're wanting to have a home birth with an attendant. Exactly. You're exactly right. And in the state of Georgia, actually, the state of Georgia only allows certified nurse midwives to be licensed. So in the state of Georgia, CPMs, traditional midwives, direct entry midwives, um, you know, we're all unlicensed and uh, certified nurse midwives are working under very heavy regulation. Um, and a lot of them due to financial reasons decide to deliver in the hospital because of a CNM working in the hospital takes about 80 to 100 births a month. When if you're a home birth midwife, you're only taking about two to five births per month, depending on the midwife. Um, so the CNM in Georgia is making a lot more money working in the hospital for the system. And it's super unfortunate that that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like instead of, I, and I understand it. I'm not trying to say like, oh, that's horrible of these midwives to choose to work in the hospital because when, when you're put in that position and you have to support your own family and, and consider all these other factors, it's, it's a shame that all of these policies and legalities and politics and money and things take, I mean, in reality, they take away support from women who aren't wanting to birth in the hospital and it gives them such limited options. Oh, it's very true. It's very true. And I feel like that's, um, that licensure in- inevitably harms women. I am a firm believer in that, um, that it is harmful. It will, it will force a woman to the hospital when it's not necessary. For example, even the unassisted birth after three C-sections. I mean, I, if I were to be licensed, I would not be allowed to attend that birth period. Mm-hmm. And, um, another example would be the water being broken for as long as it was, um, totally not allowed. I think that the, um, that the cutoff is 18 hours and then a transfer must happen. I think that, I think that these regulations are incredibly harmful. A lot of us traditional midwives in the state of Georgia and really all over the entire United States, we, um, we receive a lot of backlash for, for choosing to not be licensed. And the sad thing is, is it's usually not the women. It's not the pregnant women who do that. It's, it's uh, usually certified nurse midwives or licensed midwives that choose to attack this alternative um, as, if, as if we're not qualified or something, and, and which is just completely untrue. You know, I've, I'm an advanced provider for neonatal resuscitation. Um, I don't bring oxygen to birth, but I do bring herbs and tinctures. I don't bring Pitocin to birth because I don't, I don't believe that there's any reason for the placenta to be forced out or pulled out. I also believe that shepherd's purse is a great, um, alternative for postpartum hemorrhage than, uh, than Pitocin. And the list just goes on and on and on, but we receive a lot of backlash. I mean, there's even, 
there, the, there's even local Facebook groups in my area that um, these these midwives are targeting. These certified nurse midwives and certified professional midwives are targeting um, traditional midwives, even though in the state of Georgia, the home birth rate has gone up 27% since uh, 2020. Wow. And uh, there's, yeah, there's, um, there are people, you know, trying to push these bills in that are going to give um, full access to traditional and direct entry midwives where, where there, there is no backlash at all. And I've even, I've heard horror stories. I, I have um, one of my backups was telling me that she attended a birth as a doula last year. And that a specific certified nurse midwife was at a birth and actually saying, calling me by name and like talking with the family and telling them how dangerous I am. I, you know, I don't, I don't have to say their names because I'm not going to stoop down to that level, but there are a few that I could name by name who are trying to limit access of midwives to these women. And it's awful. It's wrong. It's very, very, very wrong. And I think that home birth midwives should stand together and work together on helping the maternal mortality rate crisis. I mean, we are, we are, we have a mission here and we're all on the same mission, no matter how we got our education or what type of certificate or licensure we hold, that we're all on the same mission here, trying to have healthy moms and healthy babies. And at the end of the day, there's there's two things at play here. One, a, a licensure, a certificate, all of that isn't what makes or breaks a midwife because there are many, many, many midwives who hold licenses that really are not great midwives. And then there's a lot of women who don't hold licenses that are wonderful midwives. So you, you really shouldn't base the decision like completely off of that. But then at the no. same time, it's it's the woman's choice who she wants to have at her birth at the end of the day. So in my opinion, as long as you're being transparent about things, the mm -hmm. woman should be able to choose if she only wants her sister there, if she wants nobody there, if she wants to go to the hospital and choose to have an elective C-section. All of those things are the woman's choice at the end of the day, and they just need to be respected instead of having this huge divide that's ultimately taking support away from women who need it. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And, and anyone who's listening to this and you're maybe, maybe you're pregnant and you're getting prepared to hire a midwife, or maybe you're not pregnant yet. And you're thinking about home birth for your VBAC or for your next pregnancy, I would highly suggest to interview many midwives, interview more than one midwife, ask questions, ask what they're, ask how many births they've attended, ask how many babies they've resuscitated, ask what risks, what risks you out of a home birth, um, ask them if they've attended variety of normal, ask them, are they comfortable with a long labor? Um, find out, you know, find out everything, ask questions, do not hesitate to ask her because that's what this consultation is for. This mm -hmm. consultation is not for your midwife to figure out if she's afraid of your quote risk. This is your chance to interview them and find out, is this person qualified to attend my birth? Is this person going to inevitably sabotage my birth? Because unfortunately that can happen sometimes. 
Um, especially with this licensure, we have a lot of midwives out there who are afraid of birth and even afraid of uh, VBAC home birth, which is, which is proven to be safe. Absolutely. So do you have one more birth story to share? Or did we go through all of them? Yes, I do have one more story, one more birth story of my own to share. And it's the story of my fifth baby. And um, yeah, it's a very extraordinary story. So I ended up getting remarried. My husband is so supportive um, before we ever got married. You know, I told him how the means of my other children being born and, um, and how, you know, if we ever had a child that this child would also be born at home and um, what I, what I do for my career and everything. And um, he was immediately supportive. I mean, he just continued telling me how powerful he thinks I am and how, how strong I am and how beautiful that is. And that he would be honored to have a baby with someone that's willing to, um, to do what's best for their child at all costs. And I ended up, um, living in the Balkans, which is Southern Europe with all of my children and my husband. And, um, right when the pandemic started getting crazy and, you know, all these regulations and masking and all these things, uh, we decided to just go to, um, go to Europe. And we did, we did exactly that. We were, we were traveling through Greece and Albania, Montenegro, Croatia, North Macedonia. Um, It was an adventure. As soon as we get there, as soon as we get there, and I'm trying to, at this point, like get trying to make plans to go to the Netherlands, because um, if you see my last name, you can probably see that um, my father is, is Dutch and Holland is actually the home birth capital of the world because about 60% of birth happens at home in the Netherlands, including my father. My father was also born at home. Um, Gosh, that would be such a fun place to live. Just imagining how uh, normal that is. Oh, I know. I know. It's like, <laughs> you know, they, it's because in Europe they have, um, universal healthcare. So they want healthcare to be as cheap as possible and home birth happen birth in general happens to be one of these things where the cheapest way is the best way and it works. And they, you know, they're the, the Dutch are must be very intelligent because they've, they figured that one out a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I was just trying to figure out, you know, are we going to go to Northern Europe? What are we going to do? You know, all these lockdowns and such, what are we going to do? Well, guess what? Uh, God decided to throw us through a loop because boom, pregnant, like (laughs) I was only there for two months and boom, pregnant. So I guess I'm fertile myrtle over here because, uh, yep, we conceived shortly after arriving in Europe. So I was navigating this new way, you know, of how I was going to complete my care because a, I did not have a birth kit. I did not have a fetoscope. I did not have the supplements that I was used to taking. I did not have access to these things. And you wouldn't believe this, but in countries like Albania, they don't have access to Amazon like we do. So um, you can order things on Amazon, but um, you're going to pay about a $250 import fee. And that was just something that I was not willing to pay. So I kind of just had to do it and make it work with uh, what I had. And so I go through my pregnancy and with this pregnancy, I was the most sick. I felt very awful in this pregnancy, just very, very nauseous. And I didn't have access to the homeopathy and all the things that I had used with my previous pregnancies and that I offer my clients. 
So yeah, I get, I get through the first trimester and during the second trimester, you know, I'm making it through and feeling much better and we're traveling and, uh, we get to this one place on the Mediterranean and we stayed in this house on a mountain and it was, it was beautiful. And I was planning on giving birth there. Um, but then I, um, actually have the opportunity to attend a home birth and believe it or not, but out there, um, they're actually in a crisis similar to the crisis that we're experiencing here in the United States. Um, they have a, a very, very high cesarean rate in, uh, in Albania, where my husband is from very high. They, uh, women are terrified to give birth and they're doing ultrasounds every, um, every week um out there and it's uh it's very strange how they have it going on because used to be everyone was born at home about 25 years ago in Albania and now they've switched to this like very medicalized fearful birthing so I didn't really have definitely didn't have support out there um no local moms to meet with nothing of the such um I did get a chance to meet with a few expats and hold some classes and train some doulas so that was nice to kind of get because people out there even though the word doula is a greek word for woman servant um they didn't even know what a doula was so um I got to train some people out there to kind of help these women in hospital births because it's um a very abusive situation out there so I did have the opportunity to attend a home birth of a fellow expat. Her name is Krista and she was a first time mom. And we, um, we were able to blossom this awesome friendship. Instead of me delivering in Albania, we decided to go out to Montenegro so I could be with Krista when she gave, gave birth and um, assist her birth. And, um, and I did, so I got to attend this beautiful home birth for a first time mom when I was 36 weeks pregnant. And that was, that was an experience. And then we got settled in into our apartment and this apartment was about an hour and a half from the closest, um, hospital. And it would be a, a mountain ride over two huge mountains to be able to get to that hospital. And I knew that. And it, it didn't scare me because um, actually Krista was able to order some um, Angelica Root and Shepherd's Purse, even though, again, not something that's completely needed because you can actually um, put a piece of the placenta in your cheek to prevent um, hemorrhaging or to stop a hemorrhage. So I wasn't too, too worried about it, but it, it was nice to be able to have these um, tinctures on hand, um, and a fetoscope. So, um, we, uh, she had her birth and I was just waiting for mine and waiting and waiting and waiting. We were getting prepared to come back to the United States. Um, so we were just waiting for the birth of my baby. Contractions would start every evening and then kind of just fizzle out by morning. And I was 41 weeks and three days with Sophia I woke up and it was 7 a.m. and I had my first contraction. My very from my very first contraction, they were three minutes apart and then immediately turned to two minutes apart. And I remember looking at my husband, and my husband was just so supportive of this birth. I mean, it was a very different situation for this birth and this pregnancy. Just having such a such a sweet and loving and supportive partner, it made the world of a difference. Um, it really, truly did. And the postpartum experience was even, even better than before. 
but he, you know, he was holding my drink and bringing me uh, nourishment during labor, which I really needed. And my labor with Sophia from start to finish was one hour and 45 minutes. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and with yeah, contractions I mean, <laughs> three minutes apart from the get-go too. That's crazy. Oh, it was extremely intense. I'm, I, I always ask my, um, my clients, you know, do you have, um, specific language that you'd like me to use for, um, contractions, you know, but I must sit here and say that, yes, Sophia's birth was extremely intense. And I think it was just because it was so fast that my body just just ramped up and just birthed her as fast as it possibly could. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, I was in the pool and of course (laughs) we, I always talk to my clients about this and it's so funny because I have attempted a water birth three times and have never been able to actually give birth in the water. I don't know what it is, but that water is, is just heaven sent during the entirety of labor. And with Sophia, I even tried to wait to get into the pool um, until I was really ready to give birth. So then I didn't jump out. But now, now I got into that water and I said, nope, I always try to do this like signature move where like I need to jump out of my own body, but can't really realize like, okay, girl, you can't jump out of your body. Um, You have to stay present and you are going to do this and you're going to do a good job at it. But thankfully I had my husband there and he just kept saying, you can do this. You can do this. I love you. You're doing a very good job. We're about to meet our baby. We're about to meet our baby. Aren't you excited to see if it's a boy or a girl? So I just run into the bathroom. So for the third time with all of my home birth after C-sections, I gave birth in the bathroom and it was uh, very special because I went from having um, a very unsupportive partner to birthing alone to then having, um, a very supportive partner. So I just, uh, I looked at him and I was like, are you, are you ready to meet our baby? And he just looked at me with this like crazy look because in his mind and looking back to it, he did not know that that baby was about to come out (laughs) because it had only been an hour and some change. And no, sure enough, my baby is coming out. And we both just put our hands down there and we both guided her straight up to my chest. And we were just both crying, you know, and so much tears and all the kids come running in and they're just like, oh, baby, you know, and it it was just us. It was just myself, my my husband and my four older children. And it was just such a beautiful experience. Once again, um, huge oxytocin rush, crying, my husband's crying, happy tears. And I just, and, and we look and see what the baby is because I mean, I really thought that this baby was a boy. I mean, we had a boy name picked out everything. And sure enough, we looked down and it's a girl. And I'm just screaming, oh, it's a girl. It's a girl. I can't believe it's a girl. And um, it was just so nice. And we we moved to the couch and the placenta's born and, uh, and, and the kids got to see it. And that, that was very important to me. And I, I think it was very nice that this baby was born in the morning. So then all of my little children can witness that because my daughter who is, um, who is seven years old, she's, she's already decided, you know, as soon she's like, mommy, as soon as I'm old enough, I want to come to birth with you. I want to do this with you. And I love all the babies and I love birth. And it was very nice to have my little, my little birth keeper there with me to 
to pet me and, and to tell me I was doing a good job. And it was just such a beautiful experience. And it was just that, that last little thing to really knit together this new family unit that we have. And for my kids to be able my kids from my previous marriage to be able to witness what it is truly like to be a supportive father in all aspects and um, just a just a very healing beautiful experience once again um, which was expected and and everything went perfect and uh, she latched right away and um, with this postpartum uh, we decided to spend the entire 10 days in the bed and that that made a world of a difference too and and that was something that I put to my husband. Um, to be able to make that happen and take care of the older children so we could really spend that time to bond and and the healing process. And uh, it was my fourth vaginal birth and, and I healed just fine, healed perfectly. And, and another thing to really point out there too is um, something that I was afraid of was tearing and I, and I never did. Out of all the births I've attended, I would say that maybe two percent of my clients have experienced a very small tear and it's always someone who's had a previous tear it makes a really big difference when you're able to move freely choose the position that you want to give birth in. you don't have hands and fingers and instruments and all these other things mm -hmm. up there forcing your baby to come out or you're not laying on your back numb and not able to really work with your body or feel what your body is doing. I mean, all of those exactly. things drastically increase your chances of tearing, whereas the normal physiology of your body is going to, I mean, not that a tear is inherently a bad thing. Like sometimes it happens just because it happens, but yeah. if your body is supported in the way that it should be. It's so much less likely to happen. Absolutely. And, and another thing that's, uh, that really helps the process along is to not have someone that is coaching you to push because mm -hmm. nobody knows when it's time to push except for the mother. Um, that is an undeniable feeling. And sometimes a mom may never push. The body will just push the baby. The, the uterus, the fundus is building to, to eject that baby. And um, sometimes a mom doesn't need to push at all. You definitely want, when you're interviewing your midwife, you definitely want to ask, does she, does she believe in coached pushing? Because that's very important as well. I am just in awe of your journey. Like from the first birth story that you told through this last one and just how it's shaped you, like you were saying with this last birth as a family, how it's bonded you and just how it really changed the trajectory of your own life and your what you do now to support other women it's just really all incredible so thank you so much for being willing to share everything that you've experienced along the way thank you so much for providing this space for me to share everything because it truly has been life changing all of these things that i have experienced have brought me to where i am today and it has changed the entire trajectory of my life in a very positive way and now you're passing that on to other women too, which is just, I mean, that's, that's amazing. I was just reading something, this is a total side tangent, but was just reading something last night about how when we heal, we can help others heal. And I think that's exactly what happens in these types of situations. When we take back control over our births and our lives, then we're able to offer that support 
for other women to to go through their own healing process and come out on the other side of it and do whatever it is that they end up doing with it too. So it's all it's all so connected and it's all so important. Yes, yes it is and and I really thank you so much for doing what you're doing and giving a place for women to share their experiences because this is how this is how it's going to change. You are a part of that uh, paradigm of change. Well, and um, and I thank you for that. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> Before we wrap up here, um, the last question that I always ask everybody is for any women that are trying to figure out how they want to move forward in future pregnancies or births, if they've had a C-section, if they're not sure if they want to go the hospital route again, if they want to go the home birth route, is there any advice that you would give or anything that you would just want to make sure they really hear from all of the stories that you shared today? I would encourage any woman to get into a nice, quiet place, whether it be prayer or meditation, um, and really separate your fear from your intuition and take the moment to ask yourself, what is truly best for me and baby? Am I selling myself short by going to the hospital? Look into statistics, interview people read stories, um, encourage, encouragement goes such a long way and, and, and continue your work in listening to stories just like this. Um, because that's really going to help you help to motivate you to make that decision. And above all, do not sell yourself short because you do deserve this. You do deserve to feel the way that every single woman is designed and created to feel when she gives birth to her baby. Do not sell yourself short at the discretion of anyone else. Well, thank you again so much just for being willing to come on and, and share everything that we talked about today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I did too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Home Birth After Cesarean podcast. Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you're interested in sharing your home birth after cesarean story, send us an email at hbacpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.